turned out he was one of 500 men brought in by an oil rig builder and its recruiters and kept in forced labor in labor camps on company property. Recruiters went to India and promised them green cards and good jobs and the chance to bring their families over. Well, it turned out there were never any green cards. The men were sold an American dream. Workers arrived and realized no green cards. Um, they were working round the clock shifts behind a barbed wire fence, living on company property, 24 to a trailer in a labor camp. And they were being forced to pay $1,000 a month for the rent for living in this labor camp. Welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock. That's our first guest today, Socket Sony, author of the new book, The Great Escape, A True Story of Forced Labor and Immigrant Dreams in America. Then... What really moves me as a union organizer and a union labor person, it is working people who are getting hammered. When you look at whose houses are burning, whose houses and lives are getting swept away in floods and, and, and damaged in storms, it is primarily working people. And the rich, you know, the rich figure they can fly out of the city. This has to stop. These banks have to stop lending for the destruction of this planet. Next Tuesday, March 21st, a group of older Americans, along with their intergenerational friends and supporters, will hold a day-long action here in Washington, D.C. to demand that the country's biggest banks stop funding fossil fuels. They're planning a multi-faith prayer circle, a walk of hope, a rally, and a march of action. In addition, small groups of elders in rocking chairs will take up a 24-hour vigil outside downtown offices of the four dirtiest banks. Some of these elders will block the entrances, risking arrest. I talked with Josh Williams, former president of the Metro Washington Labor Council, AFL-CIO, and David Mott, retired SEIU organizing coordinator, about next week's Banking on Our Future Day of Action. Here's our interview with Socket Sani. I talked with him yesterday at the weekly meeting of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. So you'll be hearing questions from some of my network colleagues. Saket Sony is the founder and director of Resilience Force. That's the national voice of the resilience workforce, which is the folks whose labor helps us to prepare for and repair after uh, climate disasters. He's been hailed as an architect of the next labor movement. He's the author of the fabulous new book, The Great Escape, A True Story of Forced Labor and Immigrant Dreams in America. Can you start uh, by telling us uh, how did 500 skilled Indian workers wind up in a Mississippi labor camp? Yes, that's what I was wondering the night I got the mysterious midnight phone call um, that set me on their trail. I was a labor organizer in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Um, and, um, you know, I was running a small nonprofit protecting the workers who were doing the rebuilding. Um, 
the post-Katrina flooding had turned New Orleans and the Gulf Coast into the world's largest construction site. And the repairs were being carried out by largely immigrant workers. Um, there were a million homes to be rebuilt in Louisiana, uh, a million more in Mississippi. So this was a rebuilding of post-war proportions. And the rebuilders uh, had come from Latin America and all over the United States. Um, and they would, um, every morning, uh, my day would start under this 60 foot tall statue of Robert E. Lee. Um, and that's what was the, the hub of hiring for all these black and brown workers in, you know, in the Gulf Coast. Contractors would come in with buses. I'd clamber onto buses and follow the workers to protect them. So that's what I was doing when I got this mysterious phone call from an Indian man who just arrived and who told me that he wanted to set up a secret meeting with me to tell me about uh, his labor issues. Um, it turned out he was one of 500 men brought in by an oil rig builder and its recruiters and kept in forced labor in labor camps on company property. Um, recruiters went to India and promised people an American dream. They promised them green cards and good jobs um, and the chance to bring their families over. Well, it turned out there were never any green cards. The men were sold an American dream. The catch was they would have to pay $20,000 a piece. This was you know, $300,000 a piece in American money in purchasing power. Workers arrived and realized no green cards. Um, they were working round the clock shifts behind a barbed wire fence, living on company property, 24 to a trailer in a labor camp. And they were being forced to pay $1,000 a month for the rent for living in this labor camp. So, um, you know, I was on their trail. I found them uh, and we engineered together the great escape at the center of the book. Tell us uh, so I get a little bit more about um, something that I didn't really know, or at least know under this name, uh, the resilience workforce. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I didn't know at the time when I met these Indian workers was that um, they were the first among um, a growing, uh, what became a growing uh, workforce in America. You know, if you remember Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath, was the first thing that most of us uh, understood and interpreted as a climate disaster. But since then, there have been many. Um, Post-Katrina flooding was supposed to be a once in a hundred year event, a hundred year flood. But since Katrina, there have been over $200 billion disasters. And each time there's a disaster, whether fire, flood or hurricane, immigrant workers have come together to rebuild and repair. We call this the rising resilience workforce. Um, like the auto workers of another era, uh, they are um, uh, the protagonists of a new rising industry that's coming together because of climate change. And, um, and my organization, Resilience Force, follows these workers as they follow storms to protect them. So what we're doing is building recognition for these workers as a formal skilled workforce. Um, we're protecting them, but we're also trying to create millions of jobs in the climate economy to rebuild and repair. The special thing, though, that happens with these workers is these are often immigrants who arrive into areas where before the disaster, immigrants were not welcome. Well, after the disaster, 
homeowners and, and, and city officials suddenly have a much bigger problem on their hands than wanting to keep immigrants out. They need these immigrant workers. So we take that opportunity to build new friendships and new social cohesion where it didn't exist before between immigrants and non-immigrants. Uh, let's just sort of rewind a bit, Saket. You came to the U.S. Uh, from India, northern India, I believe, to study playwriting at the University of Chicago. Uh, there are lots of uh, interesting and unusual routes to labor organizing, but I'm not so sure that, that I know that one. How did, how did you wound up being a, a labor organizer in New Orleans? Yeah, you know, I, um, I came to the U.S. on a scholarship uh, to study theater, uh, and, and, and that made my parents um, the first parents in the history of India who let their son come to America to study theater. Uh, I got a theater degree and I, uh, I, I, I was running a theater company uh, in Chicago, which is a great theater town uh, for those of you who know it. Um, and, um, and that's what I was doing when I missed an immigration deadline and, um, and lost my immigration status. And I thought nothing of it. I was just you know busy directing the next play. Um, but then 9-11 happened. And like a lot of immigrants, I lost my foothold in normal American life. Uh, um, and I became a low-wage worker. That's what turned me from theater to organizing. But my real education as an organizer didn't come until I went to volunteer in New Orleans. I intended to go for 10 days. I ended up staying 16 years. And I'm still organizing workers in post-disaster uh, efforts. Uh, New Orleans from everybody. I've been there, but uh, it's a hard place to leave, isn't it? It is such a hard place to leave. I never really left. I still split time between DC and and New Orleans. I'm I'm only a I'm only a a resident of of Washington, but I'm a citizen of New Orleans. <laughs> so 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 true of so many of us in DC, my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's go. Uh, Across the country to uh, the other Washington, which considers us the other Washington, uh, Harold Phillips. Uh, go ahead, Harold. Well, the first question I have to ask as an Actors' Equity member, uh, you're still writing? Oh, what a great question. I, I, I dream of going back to playwriting, but I used a lot of my theater education to write this book. You know, the, I wanted to write this book as uh, a thriller, a detective story. Um, the, the rule, the ironclad rule was to make everything scenic um, and to make the plot move forward through conflict and tension, um, just like a good campaign. You know, many of the storytelling you, rules we use to organize um, are also used in, in this book, with one exception, which is in a campaign, you don't really deeply get the interiority of people. I wanted to write a book where you get to know these immigrants and even their opponents, the, the, the traffickers, the recruiters. You get to know them as deeply as you get to know people in your life. You know, um, the title of the book is The Great Escape. And at the center of the book is this extraordinary uh, stealth feat of uh, ferrying 500 brown men out of a labor camp uh, in the Gulf Coast. Uh, and even that is just like so much like a play or a, or a, or a cinematic, a good, great heist film the way it played out, I don't want to give anything away, uh, but but it involved uh, wild turkey whiskey and flavored cigars as bribes to security guards uh, and an elaborate fictional Indian wedding as the pretext to ferry 500 men out of a labor camp. 
Well, I'm glad that you uh, that you mentioned the other factor that that you uh, <clears throat> brought up in, in that last response, which is the people who were acting as the agents. Uh, far be it for me to call them traffickers, but um, I wonder. You mentioned that a lot of immigrants are volunteering their time as part of this re resilience workforce. How common is this sort of dynamic where recruiters are going out to their countries and making promises and bringing them over only to find that, as you said, the American dream has been sold to them? Well, uh, I think of uh, there's two answers to that. On one hand, what I describe in this book is rather than being an exception, it's sort of the, the furthest extreme example of the rule. Um, many, many times migrant workers uh, come in to do seasonal work in farms or one-time work, um, you know, um, living, in, living in Washington, Harold, you're familiar with the way workers come through the so-called body shops to work in oh, the yes. tech sector, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, whether high-tech or low tech, these are labor contractors. And labor contractors can be down the street in your neighborhood, but they can also be global. And that's what we're experiencing is the globalization of this labor contracting um, system. On the other hand, what is exceptional about the story in this book, and that's why it's bookworthy, is just that there's 500 workers, not 10 or 12. And they arrive to work for an oil rig builder owned by a private equity company with investors, you know, that is extraordinary. And it makes it a David versus Goliath story that was worthy of a book treatment. Let's, uh, let's go to Judy and Sel in, in uh, Kansas City, uh, host of, of one of our oldest labor radio shows in the country, the Heartland Labor <laughs> Forum. Judy? Hi, thanks, Chris. Hi, Socket. Uh, good to see you again. Judy, I've known you for, for years and years, and I'm so happy to connect with you. Yeah, well, we want to have you on your show. But I just wanted to say, I first became aware of the struggle with the uh, so-called H-2B Indian workers uh, when I was in D.C. for a conference. And I walked by DuPont Circle, and there were a bunch of these guys camped out there. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember you walked by during the hunger strike that's described yeah, in the book. Right, right. And I said, who the heck are these guys? And I started talking to them and I got a great show out of it. So, uh, uh, you know. I think they hadn't eaten in 14 days, but nobody could believe it. Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing right in the middle of D.C. And, you know, their attempts to get the attention of the government were like long and um, frustrating. I remember that. But I want to ask you something else. Um, one of the things you didn't mention is that when you went to New Orleans, you founded the New Orleans Center for Worker Justice. And one of the things that really impressed me about that was that you worked with both Black and Latino workers to try to overcome the mutual distrust and even hate uh, that they had for uh, because they were in competition for jobs. Could you just talk about how you did that? Yeah, yeah, thanks for that question. You know, um, particularly in New Orleans, but in other places in the Gulf Coast as well, um, you know, before Katrina, there was a vibrant labor movement, right? 
and a strong, in many cases, a strong middle class. Um, you know, New Orleans was a union town. Um, teachers struck three times in 10 years in New Orleans before uh, Katrina made landfall and the city flooded. So um, here's a town that's got a vibrant labor movement. And then it, you know, and then um, the city is flooded. And um, you really had, as a result, the decimation of unions and uh, rollbacks um, in terms of worker power. You know, a lot of the way that played out was overnight jobs that were $14, $15 an hour turned into subcontracted jobs for $6 an hour in hotels and other places. Um, and part of the strategy was to bring in immigrants, um, you know, and pay them less through subcontractors. So uh, my job wasn't just protecting workers, but building racial solidarity across the black and brown divide, um, you know, building points of connection between black workers and immigrant workers. A lot of it was explaining and educating the immigrant workers on the history they were stepping into, but also helping black workers understand that these people were not coming to replace them. You know, they were being brought in to, to, to build a whole new phase of the labor market. And that was easier said than done. I remember uh, conversations that I facilitated between immigrant workers and African-American workers, uh, welders in particular, and uh, immigrant welders would say, all I want is to stay here and get citizenship. I just want papers, you know? That, that's what I need here. And black workers from the South would say, well, we got our papers and look how, how that turned out for us. Papers aren't enough, you know? So there's these really rich, extraordinary conversations. One of the things that happens in my book um, that I describe is a lot of the African-American organizers who were my mentors became mentors to the men in the book. And um, these are men from India who had deep faith in American institutions they thought all they had to do was raise their hands and the Department of Justice would come to their rescue. And it took a generation of African-American organizers to tell them, no, that's not, it's not that simple. You know, um, you, you actually have to understand your opposition. Uh, so there's a lot of African-American organizers who make appearances in this book um, at key moments to move the story and to move the struggle forward. Now, in the book, you, you, as one would expect, go deep into the lives of the workers. As you mentioned, it's very dramatic. Um, but you also got people like a camp guard, and there's this corrupt ICE agent who really is at the center of the story. And you got them to talk to you as well. I'm, I'm really curious about how that came to be. Yeah, that took a lot of hunting and a lot of digging. You know, um, what we didn't know... Um, when we started our march to Washington um, from the labor camps, the men escaped from the labor camps, um, filed a criminal complaint with the Department of Justice. But when the DOJ didn't respond, we decided to march from New Orleans to Washington. Um, what we didn't know was that deep inside the federal government, there were corrupt agents with their own corrupt ties to the company and their own nefarious intentions and they were unraveling the DOJ investigation. Um, years later, I pieced this together while writing the book, and I went looking for the Department of Justice officials and the ICE agents and the recruiters and camp guards because I wanted to create a 360-degree view. You know, um, I wanted to not just understand the worker perspective, but understand how in the 21st century 
a set of incentives and motivations and justifications can come together, you know, um, for people who think of themselves as idealists. I mean, the, the attorney at the center of the story who presented and sold the trafficking scheme to the oil rig company thought of himself as the immigrant's best friend, a friend to immigrants. How did he get to the point where he was a participant in this scheme? Most miraculous was the fact that I found this immigration agent, this ICE agent, and wind up, wound up going and um, uh, talking to him. Uh, and, and, and that conversation is in the book. I don't want to give anything away, but it was one of, one of the most extraordinary encounters in my life. I came to lay blame at his feet, um, but, I, but, I, but I found a very different result um, at the end of the book, and I, and I talk about that. Here's a, another thing that I'm wondering about. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, from the Bracero program, quote unquote, guest worker programs have almost entirely been failures and worse, much, much worse. And, yes, and it, yes, it, exactly. It, explain to me how these things are still around, how some of them are legal. And then um, I think, you know, recently there seemed to be popping up again. The the Bracero program, which was the precedent, you know, one precedent of the current guest worker programs, was shut down as a national disgrace. You're completely right, Chris. I mean, that was an importation of over a million Mexican laborers who were made promises of pensions that were never kept. Their bodies broke down at that work, right? Um, before that, after the abolition of slavery, there was an entire debt peonage system that was tied to convict labor and the growth of of Jim Crow and incarceration. So I think that there's a policy answer to what you're saying, but the deeper answer I think is that there's a there's a national uh, there's a cyclical national forgetting hmm. of, of of the ways that every generation has made mistakes, and uh, that allows um, large companies to continue to push these programs under new names you know, and profit from them. Yeah. And you're right, you know, with the kinds of um, infrastructure development we're seeing in the U.S. and the kinds of labor shortages that are already getting talked about, you know, either there'll be a movement for justice so that people can get good jobs and that immigrants and U.S.-born people can get the same wage rates, you know. So either there'll be a solidarity economy that we fight for, uh, or we'll see this all over again in higher numbers. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, Steve Zeltzer out in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think this issue of uh, immigration is uh, uh, an issue of capitalism, basically. The capitalists want workers uh, as cheap labor. And the Democrats and Republicans, uh, you look at these USMCA, uh, which in, in, you know basically uh, embedded uh, the NAFTA as a policy that allows export of capital from the United States to Mexico and, and the United States has recolonized Mexico at the same time prevents Mexicans and other workers from coming to the United States. So and both the Democrats and Republicans support that. So it's nothing new. And I think these immigration bills are to reestablish um, cheap labor or what they call guest laborers again. Um, so it's it's the nature of, of capitalism and I think that uh, what is happening now in, in Mexico, and this is important, is that uh, 
the United States wants to restructure the Mexican labor program to like the NLRB, which is an anti-labor organization, so that U.S. corporations can operate in Mexico uh, with the same structure they have here. Saka, do you want to respond to that? Uh, you know, there's a a a, a Swiss um, journalist um, who was talking about European guest worker programs, uh, and he said once. Um, in a self-critical way, he said, um, we wanted workers, but we got human beings, <laughs> Just, you know, expressing the dilemma, you know, but in a, in a self-critical and facetious way. Um, I, I think that um, what, what I and I think all of us here want to see is that if people build this country, they have a place that's permanent in it if they so choose that people who build the United States deserve to belong um, and have the same rights. And, you know, that's, that's our, uh, that's, that's all of our uh, aspiration, you know, and I, I know that many of you on this call have been working for years and years to make that a reality. And so thank you so much to all of you for being, you know, fellow travelers, um, you know, um, and I think it helps to know that none of us are alone in this in this long journey. One, one final uh, question for you before you catch your plane, Socket. Uh, you, you say that, quote, despite the human trafficking story in a labor camp in Mississippi, there was so much audacious joy that shaped these men, unquote. And I would just love for you to, to share. I, I was not expecting to find joy in this story. Yeah, well, um, I wasn't expecting to find joy uh, when I met these men. And, you know, I, I was someone who was um, estranged from India, uh, re really kind of cut off from my Indian roots, uh, living in New Orleans. And I barely called my mother. And the last thing I expected, the last people I expected to be at the center of my life were 500 men from India. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but they introduced me to so much joy. And one of the ways they did it was by teaching me to cook. The book is full of mouthwatering meals that move the story forward. Uh, even a recipe. So, so if you if you like uh, Indian food at all, this book is absolutely for you. Saket Sony is the founder and director of Resilience Force. He's the author of the fabulous new book, The Great Escape: A True Story of Forced Labor and Immigrant Dreams in America. And that's our show this week. If you'd like to hear it again or you'd like to share it, you'll find the podcast version on your favorite podcast platform. Just search for Your Rights at Work. Today's show was engineered by Kalia Chapman and Michael Nasella. I produced it. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week. This is a public service announcement with guitar.